electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The state of stocks, are they broken or are they buyable? Is the correction closer as interest rates move higher? Those are the key questions investors are now facing. Joining me for the hour to debate that, where your money is going to be heading, is the Investment Committee. Bryn Talkington, Steve Weiss, Joe Terranova, John Najarian, the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Let's check stocks. They're coming off their worst day since May. We're up pretty much across the board, except for the Russell, which is flat. Dow is good for a half percent. That's basically where the S&P is. NASDAQ is trying to get something going. There's the yields on the 10-year note, 151. Steve Weiss, come to you first. Um, you told us yesterday that you were short the S&P, that you were short the SMH, that you were cautious. So where are you today for an update from somebody who can trade in and out pretty quickly? So uh, I covered the S&P yesterday. I covered the SMH. That was a poor cover. But when it declined by what it did, I, I want to take the profits. Um, so here's where we are. We had uh, two pre- one pre-announcement today, the second one in a month from Sherwin-Williams. You have the stock's up because people feel, okay, all the bad news is out. We'll see. We had Micron that missed. That stock's okay. It was highly negative there. Uh, I also covered Micron yesterday before the close, by the way. So, so are you I'm not being as negative? forced in my position. You're not as negative? No, I, mean, I am as negative. Let's cut to the chase. Let me, no, no. Let, let, let me finish. I'm reinforced in my cautiousness because we're seeing these pre-announcements. And I think the market, as the saying goes, is whistling by the graveyard here. I'm not looking for an economic collapse. That's not the story. The story is that the supply chain continues to, to, to hit companies in two ways. Revenues decline or earnings decline because of margin pressure. And I think that's going to be the constant theme of the market. So, yes, it's up today, not nearly recovering what we lost yesterday. I think there will be better buying opportunities as we get through the quarter and that you lose nothing by staying on the sidelines. As a matter of fact, when you generate return, it's a question of where you get in where your cost of acquisition that position is. And what I'm saying is that I'm emboldened by what I've heard overnight and that you'll get better opportunities because the quarter is going to be very punk. So you think that when I asked the question at the top of the show, broken or viable, for the, for the moment, we're broken. We're not yet viable. I, th- I think that's correct. I'm not, I'm not buying into it. Look, we could see the 10 years backed off today in terms of the yield. It's rallied a little bit. And... That has to be expected after the big increase in rates that we've had. But I don't think we've seen the end of the 10-year yield going higher. I think we can see it at 160 in relatively short order. So, look, the NASDAQ is not acting great today. Given what we saw yesterday, NASDAQ is actually flat, so to speak. So I'm not blown away by this action. To me, it's an indication that retail is getting tired of buying the dips. Not as much money is coming in. So I've got a lot of red in my screen still. 
I'm happy to wait. Yeah, so, so do a lot of other broken. people. It's not viable yet. I hear you. Um, yeah. All right, Bryn, where, where do you come down? Tom Lee says we're bending, we're not breaking. One could look at this as a retest of the lows from last week. If this is the case, markets need to find footing soon, which is what we expect. City says the likelihood of a correction likely to be of the smaller variety, less than 10 percent. They say UBS yields can rise further, but so can equities. What, is, what say you? Well, I think I'm going to add a third one. We all own stocks, right? We saw fund flows this year have just been extraordinary as retail investors have come back into the market. I would be more in Tom Lee's camp about bendable. And I think what investors have to also understand is, you know, technology is close to 30 percent of the S&P, like 26 to 28 percent. And so definitely the S&P generally will have headwinds as rates have risen. So you have to understand that. But what's not broken are things like energy, which is two and a half percent of the S&P. And if it doubles again, it won't have any impact. And so I think that as we're going through this back and forth of when the Fed, is it a taper or is it just ending a program that needed to go away? And as when that starts, when we start seeing natural price discovery return back into the Treasury market, I think that's when we'll really understand where the market trajectory will go longer term and whether tech will face more of a one quarter, two quarter headwind or this is just going to be a blip. But I do think that the market's nervous about, you know, the debt ceiling, which we hope it's politics, not politics, and that gets involved. And then also yesterday, kind of the theatrics around Jay Powell and, you know, Elizabeth Warren being theatrical about that, I think is also also unsettling um, about whether he's renominated or not. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely bendable. I don't think it's going to break. We still have a ton of liquidity in the market. But you, you have to understand, tech is a huge part of the S&P. And the Qs haven't even hit their 100-day moving average, which is about, I think, 357. So you want to see it hit that and then hold well, you sold calls in the queue, in the queues. Right, exactly. I mean, so I sold calls. The queues are my one of my biggest position, my biggest tech position for sure. And this is a great environment to be selling calls because if you think if you think your security or this ETF is going to be flat to down over the short term, you can sell those calls and collect income. So I just want to like make my portfolio sweat for me as much as possible. And if I see an opportunity to sell those calls, I definitely don't want the keys to get called away. And so I sold the, the December 390. Um, which it's so far away from that, I'm not even close to getting called away. And I captured about a 3%, you know, 3% income over the next three months for holding that. So mm-hmm. I think it's a good portfolio strategy to collect income. And it's always nice to see green green in your account when you have some, you know, red red on the screen. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'll go to my birthday boy, uh, Dr. J, John Najarian. Happy birthday, Doc. Good to see you today. Um, Thank you, Scott. Correct me if I'm Great wrong. To see you. you know, I was looking at our four boxes here of everybody on the show today from the committee, and mm-hmm. I was going down City Note, the Tom Lee Note, the UBS Note, and I saw you what looked to me like skepticism at some of the more positive sentiments right now. Are you, you cautious? Are you concerned? Um, I guess I'd always be a little concerned, Scott, although I might always sound optimistic. I always do have a bit of concern. Um, right now, though, uh, from what we heard from Kuroda, the Bank of Japan, uh, as far as Japan, one of the largest economies on Earth, um, starting to come out of it. Of course, as they went into the Olympics, that, that was a time when uh, COVID was exploding over there and they were not in the midst of lockdowns. But certainly it was something that uh, was causing the population to not be as confident, sort of like uh, the same issue here, Scott. So um, 
I am optimistic that uh, they are coming out of it. I'm fairly optimistic uh, that the market made that big whoosh lower. And then instead of piling on another 200 points in the uh, NASDAQ, instead we made a little comeback. Steve's point and to Bryn's, uh, that comeback is not huge. But the, the VXN, which is the volatility of the index that Bryn just talked about, the QQQ, um, that is hovering around 26, 27. So that's definitely elevated still. And I think that gives you um, the exact sort of thing that she just took advantage of, a bigger uh, premium to insulate you a little more from the downside. I think that's what a lot of people are doing, Scott, until we get to um, the earnings reports that are still about 10 days out. It's kind of weak, though, right, Joe? Look at the, the uh, NASDAQ activity today. If, if you, you're coming off one of the worst days you've seen in a, in a while and this is all you get, I mean, if that's not a sign of underlying weakness right now, I don't know what is. Well, I think, first of all, today the quants are frustrated for the first time since September 14th. And what happened on September 14th through yesterday is you had uh, basically a 26 basis point move in the 10-year treasury. So the velocity of that move is creating an environment where our algorithms and quantitative models are repositioning out of growth-oriented equities, defensive equities, into more cyclically-oriented equities. And the question becomes, are you going to see further velocity in the move in the 10 years, similar to what you had from February through the middle of March when you had a 50-basis-point move? And during that period, it was the right approach to allocate towards specifically concentrating cyclical equities. I question that this time around, Scott. I don't think that's the trade that you want to be putting on. I think you want to have the proper blend and balance between uh, both of them. I think it's a different environment than where we were at the beginning of the year where the Federal Reserve was anchored. Now you have a Federal Reserve that is obviously going to be tapering. You also had an economy that was accelerating at the beginning of the year. I think you have an economy right now where you have to question growth. Certainly, it is decelerating in the Chinese economy, and it's decelerating here in the U.S. So I don't think you give in to this temptation going all towards concentrating uh, with values, cyclically-oriented equities. I think I mean, you have to have the right balance between both. Don't give up your fang exposure. Call me crazy, though, unless, unless the Fed doesn't want to be tapering into a correction. I mean, I know right now it seems for certain almost that the Fed is going to begin tapering and perhaps announcing it at the next meeting. However, if you're doing it in the face of an unsettled market environment, that's going to be yet another thing for, for, for us to consider. Um, Ed Yardeni, Joe, says we expect rising bond yields and energy prices will continue to favor energy and financials at the expense of technology. And if you look at the activity month to date in, let's say, the Fangs X Netflix, because I don't think we think of them, nor should we, um, in the same light in terms of market cap and impact on the market as we do in Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, and, um, and even, to some extent, Facebook. Um, is that the right way to think about it? What Ed Yardeni, a seasoned dude who's seen a lot of markets, says, look, yields are going up. Tech is going to go down at the expense of some other things that are going to be more favored. That seems reasonable. Yeah. Yeah, I think the body of evidence in the near term would suggest that Ed's correct. 
when, as I said before, you have a very fast, aggressive move in Treasury yields. If you're going to tack on, let's call it another 25 basis points on top of the 25 we've already accomplished here in the next two weeks, in the last two weeks, rather, then tech is going to underperform energy. It's going to underperform financials. But I think if you pull the optics back a little bit here and maybe look over the last uh, three months, you'll see that that has not been the right strategy, uh, that there has been more of an orientation towards growth and defense. And I think, Scott, over the long term, I think you will reach a tipping point where decelerating growth will present an environment where Treasury buyers will reemerge once again. And I think that will kind of take a 10-year Treasury and the entire yield curve and anchor it at a higher price than it is today, but not allow it to accelerate and spiral out of control above 2%. Let's assume, Weiss, that the, the market has further to go. Let, let's just assume that you're right and that you think you're going to get a better buying opportunity, um, as perhaps Wells Fargo does as well. They've been expecting a retest of the 100-day moving average of the S&P, which is 43.42. You look at where the S&P currently is, we're not that far away, uh, obviously. I don't know, what, are we 20, 30 points away from that at, at this particular time? They would look to put new money to work if the S&P breaches the 100-day moving average. So again, you're, you're not that far away. You've got calls for you know the city thing of less than a 10% correction. There you go. You're at you're at uh, 4366. So you know 30 30 some odd points away. Um, is that a reasonable way to look at things too? That there's going to be a point if you do have a pullback that it's going to be bought. It's just not the moment right now. Well. He- the answer, the general answer is yes, that's a reasonable way to look at it on, on a pullback. But I don't look at it that way. I don't look at markets pulling back, say, OK, the markets pull back. Let me get in. I'm all about bottoms up fundamentals, idiosyncratic risk and idiosyncratic stories. And when stocks get to a level, particular stocks get to a level where I'm comfortable going in, I go in regardless of what the market's doing. Now, if the market, I say that. Uh, with a little bit of trepidation, because if the market's free-falling, then I'll get that, then it'll overshoot to the downside, and I'll step in. But, you know, look, when you take a look at technology, you take a look at NASDAQ, we've got this unbelievably large spread between valuation PE in the NASDAQ versus the S&P. So that's, we're seeing that shrink a little bit now, going back to normal levels. Now, there should be a premium because of the growth factor, but The market is just unsettled. And as you mentioned, your question, I think it was to Doc, that today is the day that you're seeing it. How many days in the past have we seen this immediate buying of the dip, this V-shape from one day to the next where the market just trades up? We're seeing less and less of that. We saw less of it the week before last. Then we had three days of buying. I think that on the cusp of earnings season, there's a lot of nervousness out there, a lot of jittery out there, and you had unemployment benefits roll off, and you have people going back to work, albeit slowly, so they're not as focused on the market and throwing money at it. Well, so there are lots of headwinds that I think we've got to get past. Here's the problem. Money on the market. Here's the problem. Whereas earnings were mm-hmm. a positive catalyst in the past, and we would look at and say, what's the next catalyst? And we would have earnings on the near horizon. And we would say, We know companies are going to knock the cover off the ball because we're coming out of the pandemic. Now, as you get further on, the comps are more difficult. Now you're challenged because of all the supply chain issues that Steve has been um, noting uh, rightfully over and over. So, Bryn, 
What is the catalyst? What's a positive catalyst? I've got taper. I've got yields moving higher. I've got supply chain issues. I've got warnings rather than boasting about how great things are. Where's the good? What are, what are we going to hang I our hat some, on? Well, well, first of all, I think that certain things will resolve themselves in D.C., one would think, over the next week or so. And so sometimes having mm-hmm. headwinds just resolve themselves isn't a positive catalyst, but it takes some of the headline risk away. So that would be one. I do think, though, that to Steve's point and to your point, you know, earnings coming out, we all know that these companies are going to have good top-line earnings. They'll probably have good margins. We have a lot of stock buybacks. Corporations are very healthy. But like with Micron, it's all about forward, forward guidance. And I think that what's been so unsettling and surprising is, you know, the Fed, and I think the consensus has been saying, you know, the supply chains are transitory. Inflation is transitory. Yet no one has yet defined what transitory means. And as these companies are coming out this quarter and saying, well, we don't think it's transitory. We think it's going to last. A year is not transitory, by the way. And so I think that there will definitely be some headwinds. I do think with companies, especially in tech, where longer term, I definitely see you're going to see multiple expansion. If you get some of these you know, high-quality tech companies sell off because of one-year, six-month supply chain issues, I think it's going to be a wonderful time to step in this quarter if you do see some big sell-offs occur after earnings. But I would just remind investors of all the companies you own, you better know when those companies have earnings. I'm not a big fan of buying a stock the day before earnings. Wait till it comes out, because I think, Scott, this could give you some really good opportunity if the market continues to trade sideways or individual stocks continue to trade down. Doc, you want to address the same issue of where the positive catalyst is that we're supposed to hang our hat on now? Um, I didn't even mention the drama, maybe a better word is dysfunction, in D.C. because that's what it is. So we're dealing with that nonsense, Mm -hmm. which we think is going to eventually get worked out in terms of the debt ceiling. You've got the uncertainty of the president's agenda. That's a major issue um, to deal with. You've got all of the other things, the Fed and what is, I think, one of the more uncertain earnings periods um, since the pandemic. Yeah. And uh, Scott, I loved uh, Bryn's phrase there, politics versus politics. Um, The president, of course, was going to be here in Chicago today doing some fundraising and instead uh, decided, I think rightfully so, to stay in D.C. and to try to have more meetings with the likes of Cinema and Mansion, which he had yesterday. Um, I I think that, uh, believe it or not, because of the market being that forward-looking mechanism, Scott, that we could already be somewhat anticipating a resolution that you and Bryn just talked about to the uh, debt ceiling. And if that feeds right into earnings, that's a one-two punch, Scott, to the upside. Um, because in other words, we're anticipating right now that FUD, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt um, generated by the debt ceiling, by Elizabeth Warren's comments yesterday about the Fed chairman and so forth. Um, and that could, again, could, and I'd say it's probably 60-some-odd percent chance that it does get resolved in the next 72 hours, give or take. And then that, like I say, that feeds in nicely if we do get more of a sell-off to giving people an opportunity to get uh, in at better prices. Again, to Steve Weiss's point, getting in at better prices because they were patient. And then you're leading right into earnings after that, Scott. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm looking at the banks as we're having this conversation because, you know, of all the areas that have been helped recently by the move in rates, you know, obviously mm -hmm. the financials are, are one of them. Goldman Sachs is down nearly one mm percent -hmm. today. You're not getting much follow through. Right. And yesterday was was sort of indicative of of the kind of market you're in. You have the financials which get out of the gate well and then don't don't trade well at all. Um, our next guest, though, is mm -hmm. one of the biggest backers of financial stocks, Mike Mayo of Wells Fargo Security. He's the number one ranked analyst in that space. He joins us now live. Welcome back. It's good to see you again. Thanks for having me, Scott. We're still supposed to buy these things hand over fist. I mean, is that what you're going to tell me? Look, Scott, it's baseball season. And for bank stocks, it's a double header. Don't leave. Game one is the recovery, the cycle. Loan growth and higher rates are just around the corner. And you heard Fed Chair Powell last week use the T word, taper. So that, I think, puts 2% 10-year yield in play. So rates are going higher. And then game two is this tech-driven revolution at banks where we think you'll see profit margins on these new revenues at twice the level of existing revenues. Banks are headed toward record efficiency. And we have a new report out that we co-authored with our tech team to justify why. I'm looking at a stock, Morgan Stanley, right, which seems like everybody loves. I think uh, Joe owns it, among others, and Joe can comment on it after I ask you this question. Um, downgraded on valuation at Oppenheimer after a big run. Downgraded yesterday at Berenberg. No room to run. No absolute upside is what they say. What's your rating on Morgan Stanley? Uh, well, we do have uh, we do recommend uh, four of the five large banks. So led by Bank America and certainly uh, J.P. Morgan um, and then some regional banks like U.S. Bancorp and PNC. But we do have a, a, a hold or neutral rating on Morgan Stanley. Uh, we think their structural change uh, has gone a long way. Last decade, as you know, it was our top pick for a number of years. But that's you know, you can't. Uh, you know, dance with everybody. So we're on the sidelines with them. But we do see tremendous. Well, you're dancing with everybody else. I mean, come on. I mean, I sound I, I feel like you're like going out of your way to uh, of, avoid saying anything negative about Morgan Stanley. I mean, you're literally dancing with everybody else. But you left Morgan Stanley on the bench. Um, what's up with that? Well, I, the, the jury is out on some of their acquisitions. You don't decide on the success of an acquisition and you know, that the first few months, it takes a couple of years to really see how they're going to integrate E-Trade. They, uh, you know, James Gorman, the CEO of Morgan Stanley, he was extremely lucky with the timing of the E-Trade acquisition. But you still have some heavy lifting to do to see the follow through, you know, through a, a full cycle. So, you know, we'd rather be on the sideline when you look at, you know, generating organic revenue growth. Goldman Sachs is more prudent at doing that, you know, through cycles and back to our Tech is driving uh, banks' theme. You know, Goldman Sachs is a microcosm of the industry. Banks retooled their technology for the last decade. You didn't see the benefit of that until revenues came back, and then they have record profit margins on these new revenues, and they have some traditional banking revenues. But when those come back, you're going to see record profit margins on traditional banking revenues too. Joe, I want you to address this. I mean, here you have the number one ranked bank analyst coming out and saying, "I like everything." I'll have every flavor in the cabinet except for the one that you like. And he's not the only one because I mentioned the downgrades of, the, of, of Morgan Stanley by other people, too. So are we okay. all offsides? I'm not selling. 
not selling. They doubled the dividend, 3.1% yield right now. When you look at the wealth management business, the growth is still there. You look at the capital market business, the growth is there. If you look at trading activity, they're number one in terms of market share for the equities division. If you take the big five and you study the prior uh, earnings report, you'll see the biggest declines in equities in the other four, not in Morgan Stanley. So I'm not selling. I'm very happy with the position. I'm going to stay right where I am. Let let me ask you this, uh, a defiant Joe Terranova says, Mike Mayo. What happens? So Elizabeth Warren calls the Fed chair a dangerous man, obviously over the top. I don't need to say that. I think we're all thinking the same thing on that. Well, most of us anyway. Um, But seriously, what happens, though, if you get a different Fed chair, more favorable to progressives that isn't as generous, if you want to use that word, towards the banks? Well, I'm going to repeat one point, then I'll address your question. This tech-driven revolution at banks cuts through the rate, economic, and political cycles, and it's underappreciated at banks. When it comes to regulation that, that does go in cycles, remember Dodd-Frank is a, uh, you know, was passed under a Democratic administration. So, and it's done, it's done a great job. It made banks extremely resilient. And exhibit A for bank resiliency is through the pandemic when banks acted as a source of strength, as a source of as opposed to a source of weakness during the global financial crisis, which I talked to you about you know, over a decade ago. So, you know, Fed chairs come and go. Politics, you know, politicians come and go. Rate and economic cycles come and go. But loan growth is going to come back regardless. Our house view is rates go higher regardless. And our new big report says that profit margins go higher regardless. So um, our bank trend, our bank call, our bullish bank call transcends any one Fed chairman. Dr. J, I'm quoting your notes today. I'm loaded up on the financials. J.P. Morgan shares, B of A calls, Wells Fargo calls, Capital One calls, Key Bank mm-hmm. calls, Square calls. So you agree then? It yeah. seems quite uh, obviously with Mr. Mayo's assessment. I do, Scott. And, uh, you know, uh, we always enjoy Michael when he comes on, even without props, Mike. Um, but I, I love the idea <laughs> that this is a sector that's up 47 percent. Of course, it screamed higher in the first two months of the year, Scott. And then sort of like some of the material stocks as that uh, uh, infrastructure bill dragged on. They bled off, the banks did, those infrastructure stocks like Cliffs, like Rio Tinto and so forth, bled off. Uh, But the banks came back with a vengeance. And like I say, that's why they are the second best performing group right now. Uh, 47% is nothing to sneeze at. I think it goes higher still, Scott, but not because we jump over 2%, but because we just hold on to these higher rates here and because the consumer then decides that in a stable economy, um, which we are getting towards, that they can go out and make, you know, get those loans for whatever purposes, buy a new car, uh, work on the house, whatever it is. The consumer loan portfolios at some of these banks is going to make them more attractive and then commercial as well. Hey, Mike. And Scott, Scott, let me just add to that, you know, from a bottom up perspective, Almost every large bank that we talk to, and as you know, I've covered the space for three decades, they're saying activity Mm -hmm. is picking up across the board. And so loan growth traditionally has followed. It it could be a quarter, it could be a couple quarters 
but it's in sight. And once you get that loan growth picking up with any degree of higher rates, you're going to see more of those revenues fall to the bottom line than ever before. And that's what's still missed with the bank stock investing. We uh, will leave it there. Mr. Mayo, appreciate it. As always, Mike Mayo, Wells Fargo Security. We'll see you soon. Don't worry, Joe. I, I, I see the look on your face. I, I'll get you. I'll get you next time, okay? <laughs> Camera, don't lie, Joe. The energy sector soaring 75% in a year. It's not slowing down. Recently up 10% this month. Famed commodity trader Mark Fisher joins us next for his take on that. Joe's going to get a question, at least one. I promise. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. Drivers in Britain are lining up for gas yet again today, although the situation is improving. An industry group representing filling stations says that only 27 percent of its members are out of gas. The group also expects more stations to get fuel in the next 24 hours. The NFL getting on board with NFTs. The league has signed a deal with Dapper Labs to develop non-fungible tokens of game highlights. Dapper already has the deals with the NBA and WNBA. And Macy's is trying to stop Amazon from putting a billboard ad on top of its flagship store in New York City. Macy's is suing its landlord to stop the move, claiming that the ad for its online competitor would do immeasurable harm to Macy's business. And tonight on the news, when will Britney Spears finally be free? A judge is expected to decide this afternoon whether her father should remain her conservator or if anyone should have that role. Full coverage at 7 Eastern. You're now up to date, Scott. I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel. Appreciate it. Rahel Solomon, thank you very much. Energy. It's the best performing sector of the year has been red hot lately as oil and natural gas prices post strong monthly gains. For more on how to make money in that space right now and where it's all going from here, we're joined by one of the most successful commodity traders ever. He's Mark Fisher. He's the CEO of MBF Clearings. Good to see you, Fish. Welcome back. Hey, Scott. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm looking at my screen. Let's take nat gas first because that's what everybody seems to be talking about. 553-ish. Um, in that range, Sharif Suki, who founded Chenier, I'm, I'm sure you know him. Um, he told Kramer he thinks it could peak at six. W- what do you think? I, I don't think first, I don't think that November natural gas is going to go off the board a month from now cheaper than where October went off. October went off the board around 585. So since winter's not even starting yet, I'd be hard pressed to see how November could go off the board cheaper than October went off, no matter what happens during this month. And I think that if the price is only going to go to $6, that's based on whether we don't have an early cold winter. If we have an early cold winter and people freak out here like they freaked out in Asia and in, uh, and in, uh, in Europe, 
we're probably going to twelve dollars, not six dollars. Well, so is it is that how you're betting on it right now? I mean, I know you're an active trader. Obviously, I mean, you're that, playing the long uh, side. Yeah, well, well, we, you know, again, I think there's going to be some 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 good up buying opportunities. Like today, the market's down five percent after expiration. Typically, the market comes off. And I also think that you know you got the rolls coming up in the, in the next week or so. But th- there's no way in my mind. Though, again, whenever I say there's no way, as Joe and John will tell you, I'm probably dead wrong. But there's no, in my in my opinion, November natural gas is not going to go off the board sub five fifty five eighty. It's going to be it's too early in the winter. If we have an early winter here, people are going to get freaked out like they are freaked out already in Europe and in Japan, where natural gas is trading you know, twenty seven, twenty nine dollars a BTU. We're, we're trading five fifty, and long term, this is going to become much more of a systemic problem than it is right now. I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg, in my opinion. So, you know, it, what's your base case? Do you, do you think for for near term? Um, if you say, I mean, 12, you say 12, that sounds like kind of your worst case. What would be your, your base case on, on where it goes in the, in the near to medium term? Well, there I got to rely on my meteorologist because it's all based on how much, winter, how much cold weather we get early in the, you know, and early in the season. Because the interesting thing is if you get a lot of weather early, then people, then people get worried about do we have enough stock to get us through the winter. If you get cold weather late in the winter, People aren't as concerned because, you know, we've only got a couple of weeks left of winter. So it all depends how weather plays out in the beginning of November and in the month of November, beginning of December. If, if, weather, if cold weather doesn't materialize then, then he's probably right. Six dollars, six fifty would probably be the top. All right. If cold okay. weather doesn't materialize, it's, it's, it's off to the all, races. All bets are off. All right. We'll have to watch the forecast closely. Um, speaking of forecasts, Jeffrey Curry, Goldman Sachs, I know you I'm sure you follow his stuff. Year-end Brent target is now ninety dollars a barrel. Eighty was previous. What's yours? I don't. I'm not in the forecasting business because I'm not an analyst. We, you know, we trade and hopefully, you know, we, you know, we're right more than we're wrong. Or we're, you know, sometimes. But in the long term, the best buys on the board are not within near-term prices. In my mind, the best buys on the board are further out in the curve, like you know, uh, calendar 23, Jan 23. Uh, calendar 23 natural gas, calendar 24 crude oil, because I think crude oil, buying, being able to buy crude oil at sub $60 out three years on the curve, with the lack of you know capital expenditures to, to develop new resources with everything that's going on in the world, with natural gas you know two years out trading you know below $3.5 on the curve. This is not a, as one of your guests just said, this whole supply chain issue, which everyone thinks is a temporary issue, you know, I think the, the the black swan to everything is if this temporary supply issue lasts two, three, four, five years. And, and I think that could really, I mean, if, if the world is dependent on energy and power, which is going to be until um, we can, you know, produce enough clean, you know, clean energy, we're going to, without generating any more CapEx, we're going to run into a big problem here being able to supply what demand growth is out there. And this is going to reflect in inflation, which already has. And, and to me, these energy stocks, which are, beat, are, beat, are still beaten up and don't trade in anywhere near the multiples they should, you probably have multiple expansion in, all, in the entire energy curve if the prices that we're seeing in the future end up you know, gravitating to where the current prices are today. I want to I'll bring Joe in, in in two seconds. But so if I say to you WTI, which I'm looking at it right now, is, is 75.31. If I say in the next six months, could we hit 100 bucks? 
or, you know, give or take the six months. Again, I'm, I'm less of a forecaster than you, obviously. But a hundred dollar oil, is that something we need to seriously think about? It depends, again, on, on a lot of it depends on weather and it depends how much demand is, is still in the, in, in the marketplace. As long as we have the demand that we have now from the economy and as long as we do not keep you know, as long as nobody's um, as long as, you know, um, the weather is, you know, stays relatively cold this winter, we could definitely see above 90 dollars. I think I think I think people have been spoiled by cheap energy prices. I remember back when Joe was working with me and John. I mean, natural gas was trading above 10, 15, you know, ten dollars, you know, for back in 06, 07 back then. People have gotten spoiled to cheap energy. And I think those days are, are over. Now you sound like now you sound like my father talking about interest rate. I remember when our interest rate was seventeen <laughs> percent. Scott, I may I may be I may be reminiscing, but I think the uh, the blacks I think that no, what everyone's talking about, I listened to the first part of the show about interest rates and these 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 factors, you know, are, are, are in front of everybody every, all the time. But, you know, the whole world depends on, you know, cheap energy. And, and, and once this gets to be a scarcity like it is in China now where you go ahead and you shut down production and, you know, we, you start to see gas lines sometimes on and off. The, 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 the one that just talked before said, well, only 25 percent of the gas stations are running a problem. Only 25 percent. Mm-hmm. When you go ahead and you see that what happened to ERCOT Powell when there was a, when, when, when it became a. Uh, crazy went to nine thousand dollars. These are all symptoms of what's coming. I don't think this is a one-off. I think this is we 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 better be prepared until you know we can really transition from fossil fuels, which I think people think is five years. I don't think it's for 15, 20 years. What happens when we don't you know fill up the barrel anymore and, with, and there's not enough for everyone to go around? That's what that's what the prices are telling you. Yeah, Joe. Question for Mark Fisher. Hmm. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Scott. So, Mark, hey, good to see you. So I, I think this, the sentiment around energy, both oil and natural gas, is one that suspects this is just the cyclical blip higher. If you look at the short interest in natural gas stocks, EQT is still sitting at 6%. I think you're describing an environment where there's really a secular challenge where both oil and natural gas are going to average over the coming years much higher than it is today. Can that resolve itself in some form of an increase in supply? Is, and is the policy in place to actually incentivize the growth of supply? Or is the policy actually restricting uh, and disincentivizing the growth of supply? Would you, Joe, would you go into a business or would anybody who's listening to this go into a business where uh, the, the mindset is, you know, we're not going to need your product five, six years from now. And in order to make a good return, you need to look out from years 10 to 20. And we're going to probably, you know, carbon tax you to some degree. Would you be willing to spend money on CapEx in terms of that business? No. Right. And so by not being able to go ahead and replenish your supply, by the world being on fire in terms of the economy, by all these supply chain bottlenecks happening over, I call it the, you know, the energy inflation supply chain merry-go-round, it's just going to get worse and worse. And I think that once, if... The marketplace begins to realize that this is not going away. Then you're going to see, you know, uh, you know, the open interest in natural gas in the last six weeks, with the market going going up 20 percent, went down. People don't believe it. Energy energy stocks are lower now still than where they were two months ago. A lot of them, even though these prices have all gone up. So the so the sentiment is still no one believes it. No one believes it's when you should believe. Let me let me ask you. um, I know you're not an equity person. However, 
when you were on with us in the latter part of January, you told people to buy range resources and southwestern energy, um, which are up 126% and 47% respectively. I got um, lucky. I got lucky. Nah, I, 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 I doubt that. Um, I'm wondering if you still think those, as you say, you're going to have more multiple expansion in, in, the, in the space. You stay with those kinds of names? you have other names that you're taking a look at that you think people should look at? I'd, I'd rather leave it to John and Joe and to Steve to pick the names because, but I, I just, a gut feeling I have, and, and usually with my gut, I'm usually dead right or dead wrong, and I could be dead right. Or, I think that the curve in the back of natural gas, which um, is going to continue to creep up, I do not think you're going to get the producer sign that you've had other years in, in hedging because producers, you know, don't have the capability of hedging. I think, you know, when people realize that energy, in Asia is four to five times more expensive than it is here. And how lucky we are that we have the supply gut still because we have still a lot of you know reserves in the ground. And as we work those off, this is this is not gonna this is not gonna proceed well. If you know if, when you go ahead and uh, you buy part, you know, I'm buying a new car or or, or something you know for your house, this all comes back to the fact that not just COVID and not, you know, it also goes back to the fact that you know lack of Man, lack of energy to supply enough businesses to produce what we need. And this is going to get worse and worse and worse. We'll make that the last word. Mark Fisher, I always appreciate your time and your insights. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Right, we'll see you soon. That's Mark Fisher joining us today. Elon Moy has breaking news uh, from Capitol Hill on the debt limit. Elon. Well, Scott, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is now saying that her chamber will vote on a new bill to raise the debt limit. In a letter to her members, she said that the full faith and credit of the United States should not be questioned and that we must act now. Now, it's currently unclear exactly how long that increase would last. A similar and previous version of the bill would have raised the debt limit through December 2022. And leadership has indicated to members that that vote could happen as soon as today. But there has been some angst among moderates about taking this vote in the House because it is certainly going to be a dead on arrival once it reaches the Senate. Republicans are united against this route. But again, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi still pushing forward and saying that her chamber, at least, will vote to increase the debt limit. Back over to you, Scott. All right, Elon, appreciate the update there. Elon Moyfor still ahead on the half. John's latest unusual activity trades are coming up. Plus, Delivering Alpha, it is underway, and you can still register. You can get the morning sessions on demand. You can see the afternoon sessions live. Go to DeliveringAlpha.com. We're back on the half right after this. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. 
Negative real rates are here to stay. 74% of the global ag has negative real rates. Every single U.S. Treasury maturity has a negative real rate. Um, and the time value of money is really nothing. And so that those are all tailwinds to go into nearly every asset class around the world. Governments have no fear of debt, and they're hoping that investors follow and also don't have fear of debt. And, and investors should have fear of debt. That was J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management CEO Mary Erdo speaking with our Becky Quick earlier today at Delivering Alpha about interest rates, as you heard there. And you can still register for today's event at DeliveringAlpha.com. As I said before, you can get the morning sessions on demand. You can also see the great afternoon lineup, including a couple of conversations I'm going to have uh, starting at 2 o'clock. Brad Gerstner and then the closer today, uh, about 4.30 Eastern time, Chamath Palihapitiya of Social Capital. We're going to talk SPACs, the blow up there, and so much more. Please register, DeliveringAlpha.com. John's Unusual Activity is coming up. We're back in two minutes. Birthday boy, Unusual Activity, what do you got? All right, Judge, uh, how about this one? Healthcare Trust of America, HTA. Um, this one, of course, it's a REIT, pays nearly a 5% dividend, and they're buying the January 30 calls with the stock right there at 30. I bought those calls. I love the upside between now and January, Scott. Second one, take a look at Live Nation, a Josh Brown trade. Um, this one, they're not buying short term. They're way out in April. They're buying the April 100s with the stock at about 92.50. So they're saying it plays out over a longer period of time. I liked it. I like it still. I'll be in that one probably for the next several months. All right. I think Josh uh, will probably do the same. Dr. J, thank you very much. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. All right. Let's do final trades. Bryn, you're first. Uh, I echo everything Mark Fisher said, so we'll stick with energy, um, Viper Energy. It's a mineral rights and royalty company. I think energy is going to stay strong going into the year, so I think it's going to be a good play on oil. It's your number one sector, in fact, uh, for Q4. Thank you. Good to see you. Steve Weiss? Yeah, unlike my friend Napoleon Labenthal, this isn't going to be by Waterloo, so I'm sticking with cash. <laughs> and I'll wait for a better opportunity. Uh, all right. Joe T., the man with the ETF. Sticking with my Netflix position, Silst the six and a quarter to six fifty in the next coming months. All right, Dr. J, finally you. Like that Netflix trade, uh, EA Sports, EA, a lot of unusual activity up to the one thirty nine strikes guy. Bought a little bit more, I understand as well. All right, good to see everybody. The exchange yes, is sir. now. You've been listening to CNBC's halftime report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.